Uh, But we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 as we continue our series on the Ten Commandments, then and now. Uh, So if you find your place, we're going to begin in verse number four. We'll read the text, I'll pray, and then we'll get uh, into the rest of the sermon. God says this beginning in verse 4 to his people. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Tonight we're going to look at the second commandment, which is this. Worshiping God in the right way. Or, to be more specific, worshiping the right God in the right way. Let's have a quick word of prayer Uh, before we begin. Father, we believe that our souls are dependent on a true understanding of the word that you've given to us. So because of this, we ask that our hearts would have faith and obedience to understand what you call us to, and then to do it. Lord, help us not to push back against what you've revealed about yourself and about what it means to follow you, but rather let us Submit to you with humble hearts so that we may be blessed by obeying your word. Give us the strength to do this through your Holy Spirit, I ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Imagination is mostly a good thing. Um, If you have an iPhone in your pocket or if you have an iPad like I'm preaching from right now, then you've benefited from the imagination of Steve Jobs. You know, we have, we have train tracks, in, at least in some towns, where you can go under them, like have an underpass to get past the train tracks so a train doesn't stop traffic. Someday, we'll, maybe we'll have one of those on Kansas Avenue. That'd be amazing. That's imagination. Somebody had the, uh, the innovation to design that. Your favorite movie. Your favorite book. Your favorite stories, your favorite songs, all of those came from someone's imagination. The ability to to think something and then create what you think. But our imaginations have limits. They have limits. And one of the greatest limits our imaginations have uh, comes into play when we think about God. And while it is okay as, as part of uh, the, the command, the mandate that's been given us to uh, spread over the earth and take dominion over it, while it's okay to innovate things, it's not okay for us to use our innovation or our imagination to think about what God is like. And that's what we find in the second commandment. It's, it's as if God is telling the Israelites, there's one area in your lives where you can't use your imagination, and here it is, when it comes to what I am like my nature. Now, it it may seem like the second commandment, as we've just read it, if you remember last week's sermon, or if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, hopefully you are, if you've been a Christian for a while, 
It may seem to you, as it used to seem to me, that the second command is sort of a footnote to the first command. I mean, you you could say, well, uh, you may be thinking like this, God has already told us that idolatry is not okay, right? I mean, the first commandment made that pretty clear. No other gods. Idolatry is bad. Idolatry is not okay for God's people. Well, isn't the second commandment kind of saying the same thing? Isn't God here just condemning idolatry? Well, there's more than that. There's more than that. The second commandment deals with something the first doesn't. You see, while the first commandment tells us what God to worship, the the, the second commandment, the follow-up tells us how to worship this God. We could put it this way. The first command rules out worshiping any other gods, while the second command rules out us taking the one true God, Yahweh, the God who saves, and misrepresenting him. Have you ever had someone misrepresent you through a loose use of their imagination? You've said something to someone, and then, you know, remove that person six degrees, and somebody tells you, hey, I heard you said this, and you're like, what in the world? No, that's not what I meant. That's, that's not what I said. That's, that's not who I am. That can be really frustrating, can't it? Well, when it comes to what we as sinful human creatures think about God, our imaginations can run amok to the point that what we think about him is not true. Our imaginations can misrepresent the God who created us, the God who will judge us. And and according to God, this is very serious business when our imaginations misrepresent who he is. So here in the second command, then God is not only demanding that his people worship him, he withholds the right to image him or to imagine him on our own terms. Just two points tonight. First, the meaning of the command, and then Christ and this command. First, as we look at the meaning, I'm just going to work through kind of four headings. We'll look at the rule for the command, the reason for the command, and then a warning and a promise in the command. So first of all, notice that this second commandment gives us a rule. And here's the rule. God forbids not just worshiping other gods, not just worshiping other deities, not just belonging to or submitting to other deities, but he specifically forbids the making of idols, even idols meant to represent him. Whether it was carved from wood, chiseled out of stone, or engraved in metal, if it was cut and shaped by human hands, it was not okay for that to represent divine things. In the the biblical account of creation, God and his creatures are distinct. There is a creator-creature distinction that wasn't present in the other creation stories that people in the ancient world told. Because the other deities, in in the the pagan stories of creation, the other deities were created too, essentially. They were not self-existent. They were created by other deities. So uh, for the Egyptians even, their ideas uh, when it came to gods was that there were created beings, and then there were created beings that were in space and were really, really, really old and powerful. But not so with the creation story in Genesis. God, the one who made us, the one who made Israel, is uncreated. He's different. And because he is uncreated, it is not okay for the Israelites to take for them as creatures, created things, to take other created things to represent the creator. 
It can't be represented by a, by a rock. Especially if that rock is designed by another creation. It's not okay with God. So the command, of course, is not ruling out making things. I mean, if we go to Exodus chapter 31, when it's time to build the tabernacle. Um, the, the Israelites craft a lot of stuff, right? There's a lot of stuff crafted in the tabernacle. There's a lot of stuff crafted in the temple. I mean, they had to design a candlestick, which, by the way, was designed so it would look like a tree because the tree of life represents God's presence with his people. And the trees in Revelation are churches because God's presence is with us. That's why we're represented as lampstands. Well, that took designing. That took carving out. Why is that okay? Well, God is ruling out carving or creating things or designing things that then they would bow down and worship. In other words, with the tabernacle and the temple, it was okay for God's people to make things as long as they did not confuse those things with God. The rule, if you notice the verses we read, the rule extends to everything. Earth, heaven, sky, sea. There's, a, there's sort of, it's total, right? It's all-encompassing. Everything's covered. There's nothing in the created world. There's nothing in their own hearts or even their own minds that the Israelites could point to and say, God is like this, because it would not do him justice. So that's the rule. They couldn't create images of God from their own designs and then worship those things as God. What's the reason for this command that God gives? Well, notice verse number five. Verse number five. God gives the logic for the second commandment. And it's like this. For I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God. Imaging God is not okay. Imagining God on our own terms is not okay. If it's off limits. It's, it's out of bounds. Why? Because God is jealous. That's the reason he gives. Now, for some of us, that can be kind of an ugly word. I mean, if you have uh, kids, or if you know people that have kids, you're probably in one of those two categories. You've seen what, what jealousy looks like with children. And it's kind of an ugly thing, Right? I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you give the sibling. The other sibling wants the thing you gave the other sibling. I mean, it doesn't matter, right? You've seen this. It drives you nuts. And that's kind of what we think of when we think of jealousy. The little brother saying that he wants his big sister's toy rather than the one you got for him. And so it's kind of an ugly word. Even as adults, we often think of jealousy as very similar to, to, to coveting, to being greedy. Wanting somebody else's job or wanting somebody else's prestige or their, their money or something else like that. We have very negative connotations. And then God says here that his reasoning behind this part of his law for his people is that he has this attribute of jealousy. Don't do this, Israel, because you know me, God says, I am really Jealous. So when we think of jealousy, what do we think of wanting something that doesn't belong to you? Here's how God's jealousy is different. God's jealousy doesn't work that way in that he wants things that don't belong to him. God wants things for himself that he is entitled to. So God desires our worship. In fact, the Bible teaches he is jealous of our worship because he is entitled to it right? God is jealous 
for us, for our righteousness, for our holiness, for our sanctification. He's jealous that we would worship him and worship him exclusively and live our lives for him. Why? Because if we do anything else, it'll destroy us. That's a good jealousy. He wants these things badly and deeply because they are right and good. He's jealous toward his people. That means he seeks our total loyalty to him for our good, for our benefit. It's a comforting thing. One Old Testament scholar puts it this way, Christopher Wright. He says, part of our problem with this idea of jealousy, this this term, is that we have come to regard religion, like everything else, as a matter of consumer choice. Wright says, we resent the idea of monopolies. But God, who is unique and incomparable, makes exclusive claims. He wants to monopolize, in other words, our love. Jealousy is God's love at work, protecting us. So when when it comes to God being misrepresented, (laughs) that's not okay. He's not okay with us creating something that doesn't really reflect who he is. That is the logic of the rule. God is a jealous God. He is a good, jealous God. And so he doesn't want us to image him on our own terms. But number three, notice that there's also a warning. I mean, this is just inescapable. It's some of the harshest words we have in the whole, uh, this, this whole Ten Commandments. And we can't miss it. This God is not only jealous, but he visits the iniquity. He remembers the iniquity of the fathers on the children. To the third and the fourth generation. Now, he's not saying, he doesn't say anything here that contradicts Ezekiel 18, where it says that the fathers and the sons will pay equally for their own sins. Because it's the generations of those that hate him, right? So God visits the iniquity of those that hate him. And, and in other words, if you disobey this command, if you look at this command and flaunt it and say, I know God says this, but I don't care. Well, it doesn't matter how far you are removed from the giving of the law. It doesn't matter how far you are removed from God revealing himself on this mountain. He's still going to judge it. This isn't some sort of temporary mood that God is in. That's the effect of this warning. This is a long-term deal. God is never, ever going to be okay with us misrepresenting him, but by us using our own imagination to decide what he is like. We do not have that right. We will never have that right. So God wants to make his severity crystal clear. And he he does, right? And this is some heavy language. So lest the Israelites or any of us think this is some sort of throwaway line, lest we think the second commandment is just some sort of tack on to the first commandment, God makes it very clear that's not the case. Anyone who disobeys this, this is seen as iniquity. This is a great sin to ignore this command. So there's a warning here. But there's also a promise there's also a promise. And I love how uh, verse, uh, verse 6 uh, continues. He is the God who does this. He is not only judging those who disobey this command, judging those who flaunt this command, judging those who think they can just decide for themselves what God is like. He also says this in verse 6, I'm showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. We've moved from three or four generations to thousands. Yes, this God judges, but this God is also merciful. He's also loving. God promises to show mercy to those who love him. The God who makes demands on how we worship him is also the God who forgives our sins. The the God who tells us 
in the Ten Commandments that we are not to approach him casually is also the God who is extending mercy to us. The the God who says, you better be careful how you approach me is the God that says, I know you've messed up, I know you're broken, but I want to invite you into my mercy because I am a gracious, gracious, gracious God. This is the God who calls us to obey him. He's the God who is merciful, the God who would one day send the Messiah to die in our place. Now, some of you may have trouble connecting these two things, and especially if you're a Christian. You look at verse 6, and you hear the Lord say, you need to obey my commands because I'm merciful and gracious. And you may, friend, you may think that's some sort of contradiction. Almost like this is sort of a bait and switch that Christians do to get you interested in religion. Well, David, you're telling me that this God has all these rules, like 10 of them, but actually a whole lot more. He, he is very, very picky about how we approach him, how we worship him. He's very jealous. He doesn't want us to use our ima- imaginations to determine what he's like. David, this sounds like a very severe, a very austere, a very unapproachable God. And you're telling me that he's also merciful and gracious? You may have a lot of trouble connecting those two things, but, but this is so important. It's so important we get verse 6 wrapped up into verses 4 and 5. Here's why. Please, 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 please listen. To the degree that we try to imagine God on our own, to the degree that we say, I'm going to decide what God is like, or maybe, as you'll hear a lot of people say, I like to think of God as, and then insanity follows, right? You've, you've been in those conversations? Why is that not okay for us to do that? Because if we create God in our own image, he will not be merciful and he will not be as gracious as the true God. All you have to do is look at the religion of Israel's neighbors. Their false gods demanded things of them that they were not able to do and then they, uh, they, all they had was condemnation. You, you want to be, be fertile? You want to have a lot of babies? You want to have, have a lot of growth in your harvest? Okay, sacrifice your kids. Like, burn them. What kind of God is that? That's a God that humans come up with. That's what kind of God it is. See, I I hope you're connecting verse 6 to the command because God is telling us we don't get to decide what he's like and here's why. People, you don't get to decide what I'm like and here's why, Israel, because I'm so gracious, I'm so merciful, I'm so loving. If you try to create me on your own terms, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. And we do miss it, don't we? (laughs) Have you ever talked to someone who's having trouble becoming a Christian and and they say something like this? I've had so many people tell me this specific thing when I'm trying to witness to them or do a Bible study with them. They say, I don't think God could forgive this thing in my past. Now, why do they say that? Why would they say that? Because they've created an image of God that's actually misrepresenting God. And a God made in their own image has limits to what he will forgive. And in the image that they've created of God, all they find is hopelessness and despair. So this is why God tells us in verse 6, Israel, don't try to carve me out. Don't try to use your own imagination to decide what I'm like. Don't follow your heart to decide what I'm like. Here's why. Because I am merciful and loving and gracious more than you could ever imagine. You see, the second commandment teaches us then that we don't get to determine the image 
of God. When it comes to God, our own fallen imaginations are off limits. Even before the fall, don't we see this with Eve? Don't we see this with Eve when she exaggerates God's judgment? God says, don't eat of it. You'll die. What does Eve say? We can't eat of it. We can't even touch it. Man, serpent, we can't even touch it or we're going to die. What is she doing? She's imaging God. She's imaging God. As sin is entering the world, Eve is saying uh, she's having a hard time imagining God for how gracious and and, and how loving and how merciful he really is. So, So she exaggerates the demands that he gave Adam and Eve in the garden. That's what happens when we imagine God. That's what happens when we decide we're going to think of God on our own terms. We get it wrong every time. So the the second command then teaches us that God's people don't have the right to represent God however they want to. All right, so number two, Christ in the second command. Christ in the second command. For the follower of Jesus... Exodus 20 is where we begin if we want to understand the command to not make images of God, right? This is where we start. But if you're a Christian, Exodus 20 is certainly not where you would end. And if you've read the New Testament at all, you know where we're going with this. This is only the first half of the story. When we think about the logic of the second commandment, it it seems obvious that because... God is invisible because he's holy, because he's so distant and separate from us. We understand that any attempt to make him visible on our part would create a a false, monstrous representation of who he is. But here's the question. Here's the question that the good news answers. What if God made a representation of himself? What if God imaged himself? Instead of us trying to do it. Well, then what would we have? Well, we'd have the incarnation. We'd have the incarnation. Uh, the the, the uh, theologian, who is a beautiful writer and had an, an unfortunate name, Edmund Clowney, writes this. God did not want his people trying to make an image of him because his purpose was to show himself to his people in the person of Christ. Do you see that? Do you see that? Remember, you, do you remember John chapter 4? Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And, and, and the Samaritan woman, she realizes this is some sort of teacher. He's some sort of, of, of prophet. So I'm going to ask him a, a question. I'm going to ask him a question. Sometimes when, when people meet you, if you're a minister, they have some weird Bible question for you. Well, she finds out, this guy's a rabbi. I have a weird Bible question for him, right? Here's her question. Uh, our people say it's okay to worship on this mountain. The Jews say God only is with us. He only accepts our worship. He's only present to us if we worship him on this other mountain. So, rabbi, what's your opinion? On which mountain do we go to encounter the presence of God? On which mountain do we go so that God will accept us? So that God will receive receive our worship? Rabbi, tell me, where do we go to worship God? And Jesus says, the time is coming. The time is coming where you won't go to either mountain. God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So which mountain is it? It's not a mountain. 
It's not a mountain. Jesus says, destroy this temple. I will rebuild it in three days. He's not just playing with their heads when he says that. He could have said body. He said temple on purpose. Why? Because Jesus is the presence of God come among us. That's why we're not looking forward to another temple. Revelation 21 says that in the new earth, there won't be a temple because the lamb is the temple of it. In other words, Jesus is God's presence to us. Jesus reveals God. Colossians 1.15, Hebrews 1.13, he is the exact image, the exact representation of his father. You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know what God is like? Read the Gospels. See what Jesus says. See how Jesus acts towards sinners. See how Jesus forgives the unforgivable. This is what God is like. John 1.18, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So John says God is invisible. We haven't seen him. By the way, this is why we can't decide that, that we're going to be in charge of what he is like. This is why we can't represent him. This is why we can't image him. Because God is invisible. But Jesus came and Jesus wasn't invisible. We can't image God, but that doesn't mean God doesn't want to be known. Oh, God does want to be known. And if you don't know him, he even wants to be known by you. Clowney again, he says, this true man, this is Christ. He was also true God. The incarnate Christ is not a human attempt to create an image of the living God. But rather, God's gracious gift of an anointed image, which we are not only permitted, but commanded to worship. Isn't that amazing? Here's what he's saying. We don't know how to worship God. We don't know what God is like. We can't approach him properly, but in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter because we have God himself in the flesh revealed to us. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to know what what Jesus thinks of you if you have a sexually checkered past? Then read about the woman at the well. Do you want to know if God cares about you and if he'll accept you? Even if you have a whole history of fake religion and self-righteousness, read about the older son in Luke 15. Do you want to know what God thinks when people repent? Well, read about the younger son. For all our ideas about what God is like or what we think God should be like, or really a lot of those are just ideas about ourselves, Jesus comes and turns all of those ideas on their head. The incarnation and the sending of the Spirit means this. Because we have the Spirit, not only does Jesus reveal God, but we can become more like Jesus through the Holy Spirit as we look to him. And this is the amazing reality of 2 Corinthians 3.18, which is a verse in itself where we could probably spend years exploring exactly what this means. But 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that because of the Holy Spirit, we look to Christ and we are changed from glory to glory as we behold him. In other words, as we look to Jesus... As we look to what Christ has revealed about himself, as we read the Gospels and meditate on them, and as we read the epistles, which are about Jesus, and as we read the Old Testament, which points us to Jesus, 
We don't just get informed about what he is like. We don't just get a better picture of what God is like. We actually become like Jesus. That's why we're not going to have a Sunday morning seminar on how to be a joyful person. Instead, we're going to teach and preach Scripture so you can look at Jesus. And as you look to Jesus, the Holy Spirit will help you, believer, become a joyful person. That's why we're not going to uh, email every member in the church life hacks about how to become a gentler person. Rather, the people who teach the Bible from this pulpit are burdened and passionate about you digging into Scripture. Because as you do, you will begin over time, slowly, maybe not on your timetable, but on God's, you will begin to have the gentleness that Jesus had. That's how this whole thing works. That as we look to Christ, we become more like him. We get a better glimpse of what God is actually like, which are not the same as our ideas of him. And then God actually makes us godly as we look to him. Here's what it boils down to. The second commandment is bad news for sinners who imagine God on our own terms. But it's ultimately good news because God is better than we could have ever imagined. God is so much better than our small thoughts of him. God's holiness is so much greater than our weak thoughts of his holiness. God's omnipotence, his ability to provide for you and for your family and to keep his promises to you is so much bigger than your weak thoughts of God's omnipotence. God's love is so much greater. Its borders are so much more expansive than your weak thoughts of what it means for God to be loving. However loving you can imagine God to be, try to imagine that right now. He is infinitely more loving than whatever came to your mind. This is why we need to look to Christ to know who God is. Now the hard edges of this command are that our own sinful human thoughts of what God is like will never measure up. But the good news of this command is that God has revealed himself to us so we can know him. So we don't have to carve out pitiful idols that misrepresent him and that limit him based on our own small views of who he is, but so that we can gaze on him in truth. Two things for way of application tonight. In response to this commandment, number one, evaluate how you imagine God. Uh, that may be hard to do, so I'll, I'll give you some maybe examples to think what I to understand what I mean by that. Evaluate how you imagine God. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier. Sometimes we hear people say, "I like to think of God as," and then they'll tell you. And sometimes we as Christians make that same mistake. We have a, a very domesticated, safe version of God that comes from our own heart, not from the Bible. Not from the life of Jesus. And it's amazing because this version of God is okay with all of our pet sins. Isn't that amazing? Like, if you don't struggle with laziness, this, this God of your own making, your own imagination, is, is very hard on laziness. But if you do struggle with laziness, you've managed to worship a God who's just okay with it. 
If you struggle with lust, you've convinced yourself that the God that you worship, the God that created you, it, it just looks the other way and says, well, that's just human. That's just what she struggles with or that's just what he struggles with. It's not a big deal. If your image of God, if your understanding of who God is happens to be okay with all of your sins, I promise you that's not a coincidence. (laughs) What's going on is, in defiance of this second command, though you may not be using wood and though you may not be using stone, you've erected a false representation of who God is. I think this happens in our evangelism. I really think this happens in our evangelism. If someone that you work with or a family member or someone that you know, you're inviting them to church and they tell you, what does your church think about X? And we're like, well, we just love everybody. Now, we do love everybody. And we need to tell people that we love them no matter what sins they struggle with because everyone in this room, no matter how long you've been a member, you deal with sins that Jesus died for. I get that. I totally get that. But if in your evangelistic conversations, they walk away thinking that God is okay with everything they've done, that God is okay with all of their desires, that God happens to be on the progressive side of every controversial issue of the day, you have misrepresented God in your conversations with other people. Evangelism is not God's okay with you. Come worship him with us. Evangelism is rather this. God is not okay with you, but Jesus died for all the things that make you not okay with God. So come receive his forgiveness. Come enter this joy of living a life of repentance. Because no matter what you've done, Though he is opposed to it, though he does hate it, though he's not okay with it, unlike the pagan versions of God, instead of demanding you sacrifice to make it okay, he has sacrificed himself to make you right with him. That is our message. That is our message. Any attempts to reach others with Christianity, with a non-Christian view of who God is, are not okay with God. Because he's told us we don't get to decide how to represent him. I know this can put you into some very uncomfortable situations. But the best news that our friends and neighbors could hear without Christ is not that God is okay with their sin. It's that their sin is worse than they could ever imagine in God's eyes. But God has done more than they could ever imagine in giving of himself to pay for it. We've always had this problem with idols, whether physical or not. And that is that they tend to become things that we either manipulate and do whatever we want them to do, or they are things that terrify us. They're things that terrify us. This is why some of you don't pray. Because you're too afraid of God. You don't have a healthy fear of the Lord. You have an unhealthy fear of the Lord. Some of you had an abusive parent, and you've taken that image of your abusive parent, and you've projected that onto God. And you think whatever demands they had of you, however irrational they were with you, however unloving they were to you, however angry they were at you, however unforgiving they were to you, you imagine God is like that. But he's not like that. He's not. Some of you had passive parents who let you get away with whatever you wanted to do. And you've taken that image and you've projected that onto God. But that is not who God is. That's not who God is. 
He judges our sin, though he also stands ready to forgive it with open arms. Number two, not only should you evaluate how you image God, but number two, you should worship God in confidence. I think a lot of us could come to the second commandment and we may think, if God is this condemning about all the thoughts I have of him, is it even possible for him to accept me? David, if you're telling me that all these things I've imagined about God may be wrong, then how can I even approach him at all? Well, Jesus, the one who perfectly represents God, also happens to represent us before God. So the writer of Hebrews does two things. Not only does the writer of Hebrews say that Jesus is the perfect representation of God's nature, but he also takes us uh, in chapter 4 and tells us that he is also this great high priest. The one who perfectly images God mediates our relationship with God. Jesus, our high priest, is compassionate toward us. He knows what it's like to feel pain, to feel sorrow, to feel betrayal, to feel hunger. He even knows what it's like to face temptation, though his was external. And for all of your wrong thoughts about God, for all of your thoughts that God may just be vengeful and out to get you, or that he is unloving, look to Christ, who is your high priest who intercedes for you, who loves you, who has made you a brother and a a joint heir with him of all things. Basically, church, I just want to ask you this tonight. Are there any ways that we've misrepresented God? Have you tried to imagine God on your own terms? Does your imagination of God end up with some sort of deity who is never at odds with you in anything you do? Does does your version of God seem to be okay with you never confessing your sins? Well, that is not the God of Scripture, nor is the God of Scripture the God who demands that we are perfectionists and do our own works to satisfy him. God is much, 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 much greater than you could ever imagine. And if you want to know what he's like, look to Jesus and believe what he reveals. So tonight when we pray, I'm just going to ask you to do two things. I'm just going to ask you to do two things. Number one, I want you to confess any false ideas about God. And then number two, I want God to ask you, Lord, help me to spend the rest of my life gazing on Jesus so that I understand who you really are. Would you do that tonight in prayer? When, when we pray, you can pray a prayer. You can pray at your seat. It doesn't matter. Confess how you've misrepresented God and ask God to help you gaze at our Lord Jesus Christ.